Today is March 19th, 2021. A man kills eight people in shootings involving several Atlanta spa boutiques. Democrats and Republicans alike urge Biden to take a tougher stance on China. And the Derek Chauvin trial hits speed bumps. Welcome back, Split the Difference friends and Split the Difference family. We got another fantastic episode for you here today, bright and early on this Friday morning, bringing you all the best news and insights that your heart could possibly desire from both the left and the right side of the aisle. As always, y'all, you know we're splitting the difference and finding that sweet, sweet truth that lies right there in the middle. I could... I think I could say that this is the best podcast that we have done so far, and it's for a variety of reasons, and of, of course you guys will see here in a bit, but it's because I think this is the best podcast that we have done so far, and you guys are gonna love it. So without further ado, let's go ahead and hop on into our first story of the day, story number one. So for our first story of the day, as many of you may have heard, on Tuesday there was a shooting uh, in Georgia around north of Atlanta and then down into northeast Atlanta uh, that was absolutely tragic in so many ways, and I would be remiss, of course, if I did not cover it on this podcast because I think it touches on a wide variety of different issues and problems and things that we have here in the United States, um, especially regarding race relations. Um and kind of the current state of a lot of different things here in the United States with our culture. Um, so a little bit of background around basically what happened um, and kind of what why this is important. Okay, so uh, in Atlanta on Tuesday, as far as we know, around eight people have been killed, six of them being Asian women. It took place at three different spa boutiques. The first one was Young's Asian Massage in Ackworth, Cherokee County, Georgia. The second one was Gold Spa in Northeast Atlanta. And then the third was the Aromatherapy Spa across the street from the Gold Spa there in Northeast Atlanta. So from what it looks like, uh, a shooter, a 21-year-old white male, was arrested in Crisps County after going to uh, up in the northeast portion of Georgia, um, the Young's Asian Massage Parlor, and then went after completing that shooting, committing that crime, drove down uh, and killed and shot more people within two other spas uh, in northeast Atlanta there. So I'm not going to use his name because I prefer not to use the name of people on my podcast that do absolutely horrendous things, especially in some sort of terrorist or horrible, horribly racially motivated crime, because I do not want to get them the gratification of having their name circulated around if I can help it. So uh, the first shooting took place about or he was arrested actually about 150 miles south of Atlanta where he was fleeing in his car. Uh, his parents identified him as the shooter after he after there was uh, clips of him, security camera footage of him leaving the places. Uh, and then, you know, they said what kind of car he was driving and the police subsequently pushed his car, forced his car over onto the side of the road. He was then arrested and was obviously fleeing to go back, to go down further into, he looked like he was going towards Florida. Uh, he is currently facing multiple counts of murder and aggravated assault. He admitted to the crimes and said that he was a victim of sexual addiction, claiming that the places he attacked were places of temptation for him, which we will get into later. So uh, before we go any further, let's go ahead and hop in 
This is CBS This Morning reporting on this uh, just a day or so ago, uh, basically giving a little bit of details around what happened, and then uh, the sheriff are, uh, comes out and actually talks a bit about it as well. We have new information this morning on the attacks around Atlanta that killed eight people on Tuesday, including six Asian women. The suspect, 21-year-old Robert Long, is charged with murder and aggravated assault. But one police spokesman is taking criticism for his public response as investigators say they are not sure if the attacks targeted Asians. Mark Strassman is in Cherokee County, Georgia, for us outside the spa where the rampage began. Mark, good morning to you. Good morning, Tony. This is where it began, where four people were killed, two of them Asian women. The suspect, Robert Long, told police he's a sex addict, not a racist. But there are plenty of people who believe that this was a hate crime. Robert Long's parents recognized him in these surveillance photos posted on social media and alerted deputies who began tracking his cell phone. They forced his SUV off the highway and arrested him 150 miles south of Atlanta. But not before they say he went on a rampage at three different Atlanta area spas. A white male? What is he wearing? I don't know. Please come, okay? Eight people were murdered in roughly one hour, six of them Asian women. This is still early, but he does claim that it was not racially motivated. Officials he, said race did not appear to be behind the attacks. He apparently has an issue, uh, what he considers a, a, a sex fiction, and sees these locations as something that allows him to go to these places, and, and it's a temptation for him that he wanted to eliminate. All right, so... From what we know, the Georgia police are saying that it was not racially motivated like you heard there at the end, but instead it was motivated by this guy's sex addiction. At this point, it is too early to say whether or not it was racially motivated, uh, but I have a really, really hard time believing that it wasn't racially motivated. I mean, the name of the first place that he went was literally named Young's Asian Massage. Uh, and there are a couple things that I think are incredibly important to talk about here. So one, I think, is the rise of anti-Asian sentiment in America since the beginning of the pandemic, which I think has been widely, widely publicized and talked about a good bit over the past year. However, uh, I, I think that it is very important for us to talk about it here on our show as well as we kind of try to bridge the gap between a lot of different issues and talk through. We don't run away from difficult issues. We try to lean into them and find a middle ground where we can. Uh, the second reason is the reason why whether or not this was based upon race is important because it is important and I'm hearing a lot um, I think maybe especially from the right side of the aisle that is pushing more of the idea that it doesn't matter whether or not the the women it, you know this was a race-based crime uh, killing of anybody is bad which I agree with but um, race is not important in this but I, I think that it is and then the third is the sexualization and the fetishization the fetishization of Asian women in American culture as well I think those are the three big things that that, that we need to cover so the first uh, there's been a documented rise in anti-Asian uh, sentiment in America since the start of the pandemic which has been tracked by multiple organizations over the past year uh, a report released on Tuesday showed that over the past year that have been there have been 3800 uh, what they would designate as hate crimes uh, committed against Asian Americans, and 68% of those have actually been against Asian women specifically. Um, there are a lot of, I think, I think a lot of reasons behind this. Uh, primarily, a lot of what I think you're hearing the media push is that this is should be blamed on Donald Trump. 
because of the rhetoric that he used around the coronavirus specifically. So there are many claims that COVID actually eliminate or originated in a lab in China. So, so far that has not been substantiated at all. Would it surprise me if it was, you know, made in a lab in China? No, but do we actually have hard evidence of that? No, right? So you can't make unsubstantiated claims that it was uh, purposefully created by China in order to, I don't, uh, there's tons of theories out there, control population or attack America or a whole bunch of different things out there. Um, Trump also repeatedly called uh, the coronavirus, uh, the China virus or Kung flu in order to pin the blame on China. It was, I think, kind of Trump's PR strategy to try and take a little bit of the heat off of himself and place it on China, especially amongst his reporters, which oftentimes a lot of his supporters can be incredibly racially insensitive or maybe, um, lean a bit more into uh, attacking thing, things and people for race. Um, so I, I can't speak to whether or not this actually has caused, right, all the rise in hate crimes against Asian Americans because I think you get into a very, very slippery slope and a dangerous area when you start uh, trying to hold leaders accountable for things that they say uh, based upon the actions that some of their followers or some of the people that support them have gone out and done. And this is something that I think that we should hold on both sides of the aisle, right? Like, I don't think that you should hold Barack Obama accountable for shootings that happened in Dallas in 2013 because of the, uh, or I believe maybe it was 2016, uh, based upon the heightened rhetoric that Barack Obama was using around racial tensions at the time. I don't think that you should hold Bernie Sanders accountable for the guy that came and shot up the Republican congressional baseball game a couple years ago and almost killed Steve Scalise out of Louisiana. I, I don't, I don't think that you can do that, right? Just because that guy was a Bernie Sanders supporter doesn't mean that you hold Bernie Sanders accountable. And you know, I think I feel the same way about what's happening with Donald Trump as well. Although I will say it is not all that far of a leap to make to think that a lot of the negative rhetoric that Donald Trump has used, especially around China and Asian countries, specifically uh, be around the coronavirus pandemic, would of course lead to negative sentiment within America around and towards Asian Americans. Uh, I think a great example of this was you saw a very marked increase in distrust for Middle Eastern Americans and Middle Eastern uh, immigrants as well from around the time of 9-11 based upon racial prejudices after the terrorist attacks happened. There was basically this welling up of nationalism in the United States because of the egregious ta attacks that happened against the World Trade Center. And as a result, there were a lot of incredibly racially insensitive things that people were doing and saying around that time because they were scared of especially Muslim Middle Eastern men. Um, so of course, different things happening in culture and around the world are going to influence the way that people treat people, especially based upon race. Um, so the second thing, why is race important? So uh, I've heard a couple of things, I think especially, like I said earlier, coming from the right side of the aisle, that race is, is not necessarily important in this case. And basically the idea is it doesn't matter whether or not he specifically targeted Asians, it is bad that he killed no matter what race they are. And right, that's true. Like the sentiment is true. Killing anyone is absolutely bad. But ignoring the problem of race altogether negates the larger problem of mistrust between races in America as a whole. So I think on the right side of the aisle, there's this 
there's this thing that's uh, that's oftentimes perpetuated about Asian Americans, uh, where they are oftentimes used as the counter argument on the right for why racism is not as much of an issue in America as the left often portray. So oftentimes you'll hear uh, that Asians are the model minority, or that's a a phrase that's been kind of tossed around. And the idea is basically that um, for a lot of Asians, uh, that there's the medium household income is relatively high. The median education in their culture is relatively high when they're in America, uh, as you know, a wide variety of other st- stats as, and they use them as examples of why Asians break the quote racism problem that are purported by other minorities in America. Uh, and this is actually in a lot of ways led to a lot less reporting on racially motivated crimes against, uh, Asian Americans in America. And so we have significantly more insights, especially at the federal level of racially motivated crimes or hate crimes against blacks and Latinos, but a fairly scant amount of, um, any type of data or statistics around racially insensitive crimes against Asians in America. And it's because oftentimes, like I was saying earlier, Asians are used as the model minority for uh, how uh, how minorities should act or behave or whatever whatever else that you think that they should be because uh, the right oftentimes wants to try and pull away from the racism conversation and move more towards uh, there. We have problems and socioeconomic problems. Like it's a poverty problem that we have in the United States. It's not a black or a white problem or an Asian problem. Right. Um, But that I think in a lot of ways ignores the incredibly racially insensitive acts like this one and violent crimes done specifically against uh, people of certain races. And as a result, doesn't lead for good further conversations, right? Uh, I also think that you can, uh, you have to say that, uh, if, of course it's not true that Asians just haven't experienced, uh, racism throughout American history as well. Like to say that is just categorically false. Uh, in 1892, the Chinese exclusion act actually banned Chinese immigrants from entering the United States completely, which actually took place after the page act of 1875, which banned quote, importing women for the purpose of prostitution, which seems out on the surface like, okay, that's good. Maybe you're trying to stop sex trafficking. I can understand why why you would want to maybe stop that because these women are being taken advantage of. But it was later used as a means by which to keep Asian women from coming into the country altogether because they were actually looked at and saw, seen as sexually deviant. Okay, so it kind of started to perpetuate this idea that that Asian women were sexually sexual deviants, that they were debaucherous, and as a result, they shouldn't be allowed into this great Christian moral nation that we have in America. And there's, uh, I think, a good amount of sarcasm in my voice there. So the, I think another thing that also has to be mentioned is the, actually the Japanese internment camps that were created and in place during World War II all along the West Coast of the United States as well, where Japanese Americans were literally rounded up and forced into camps because we were worried that they were communicating intel or secrets to the Japanese during World War II. That is incredibly insensitive. That is incredibly racist to act like there's no such thing as Asian American racism in the United States uh, historically is just, it's just categorically false. So 
The last thing that I think is important uh, that we need to touch on is the sexualization and the fetishization of Asian women that is incredibly prevalent within American culture and has been for a long time. So uh, up to 55% of Asian women in the United States report of having experienced some type of intimate physical or sexual violence during their lifetimes. As according to the Asian Pacific Institute on gender-based violence, so the range uh, the, there's the range going up to 55 percent is basically based upon a multitude of studies that were compiled together. Some of them showing a significantly larger percentage of Asian American women that experience sexual violence, when generally the American uh, public, American women. Uh, about one third of them have experienced some kind of sexual violence that are self-reported by them. So, um, Song Yon Chiomoro. Choi Moro, I believe is how you pronounce her last name, the executive director of the nonprofit uh, National Asian, Asian Pacific American Women's Forum, uh, said that uh, what's often lost in the discussion is how Asian women experience very, very specific forms of sexism. Um, and she actually qu said, uh, quote, killing Asian American women to eliminate a man's temptation speaks to the history of objectification of Asian and Asian American women as variations of the Asian temptress, the dragon ladies and the lotus blossoms whose value is only in relation to the men's fantasies and desires this is horrifying stop fetishizing us so uh much much of the i think the history of sexualization of uh asian women i think does actually really begin in the late 1800s uh around a lot of the ideas of asian women specifically uh being pushed across as prostitutes oftentimes. Um, and you actually see this in multiple places in American culture throughout history as well. But a great example of it is in the 1987 film Full Metal Jacket, which was an incredibly uh, famous war movie. Uh, but it portrays Vietnam Vietnamese uh, women as sex workers that are pretty much there for the pleasure of the American GIs that are stationed there in Vietnam. So uh, it's needless to say that the Asian American community right now and America is uh, feeling incredibly attacked, probably very overwhelmed. And uh, many are saying, you know, that the refusing to acknowledge how race uh, played a role in this will continue to try and make it more difficult uh, for Asian Americans that actually experience a lot of violence like this and forcing them to kind of feel like they're invisible. Um I think that there's a lot of conversations around white and black race relations in the United States because that's an incredibly important conversation. There's an incredible amount of history that, that, is prevalent there. I mean, I did a podcast about uh, racism between whites and blacks in America not too long ago. It's a very important issue. However, I think that because of how egregious this act was over the past week, it really brought to light a lot of uh, other problems outside of just race relations between whites and blacks in America as well. So, Difficult story to speak about, different, difficult story to, I think, do research on today. I wanted to spend a little bit more time on it and hopefully push y'all to do some research and to, to think about a lot of the different ways that I think uh, Asian Americans are in a lot. I think they, they feel like in some ways... Uh, don't get talked about in terms of uh, the the different forms of either sexism or racism that happened to them because in some ways uh, race relations between you know Asian Americans and the rest of America is somewhat somewhat pushed to the wayside at times. So I felt like there needed to be good conversation around it. Um, so with all of that having been said, that is the end of our first story of the day. Let's go ahead and hop on into our second story, story number two. 
So for our second story of the day, Biden uh, get, is starting to get tough on China. So both parties united around pushing Biden to take a harder stance uh, in a lot of China's broader ambitions, especially around the world, as he enters into uh, a two-day summit, or his administration enters into a two-day summit in Anchorage, Alaska. So Secretary of State Anthony, Anthony Blinken and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan meet Thursday and Friday, uh, so yesterday and today, in Anchorage with China's top diplomat, diplomats um, and China, the top foreign minister for China as well. Uh, there's a broad consensus amongst Americans uh, by polling data and also a broad consensus amongst uh, politicians in Congress to take a hardline stance against China. So many note incredible human rights abuses uh, and Chinese trade practices that have purposefully disadvantaged United States companies. I actually did a full podcast on the Uyghur Muslim concentration camps that are currently going on and being filled to the brim in China. So go and give that a listen. Uh, if you want more information, I believe the podcast number is in the early 50s if you, if you want to go back and listen through that because that was... And also another incredibly difficult podcast to research, but I think something that is is very, very important to talk about. So many are calling for substantial legislative moves in order to stymie the push that by China to further take advantage of America on a world stage. And there's no doubt that the ambitions of the Chinese government are in total opposition to American interest. I mean, wholeheartedly, they are not ashamed of this at all. So far, Biden has not dropped a lot of the Trump era policies against China. And, uh, I think it's because Biden is still formulating a lot of his policy, foreign policy on, you know, exactly how he's going to deal with the problem of China. Trump undoubtedly brought a lot of unpredictability to the foreign policy in America, especially when it came to China. He oftentimes would use incredibly rough rhetoric uh, against his political opponents, both domestically and abroad. And this, of course, is you know meant to make people like Chinese President Xi Jinping angry, right? But Biden has moved away from the harsh rhetoric, but instead just kind of kept the harsh policy. So uh, it looks like uh, Biden is trying to dial that rhetoric back in order to be able to move into negotiations that can hopefully be beneficial. Uh, instead of just slapping tariffs on and not having a lot of negotiations, I think Biden wants to leave the tariffs that are there and basically be like, that was Trump's idea, that wasn't mine, but use them hopefully as a negotiating tool to hopefully increase and make our relationship with China better because currently it's not great. Uh, during a visit to Japan, actually, over the last couple of months, America has made it incredibly clear, Biden's administration has made it incredibly clear, that a harder line is going to be taken. So Antony Blinken in Japan warned against a, quote, coercive and aggression, coercion and aggression by Beijing and vowed that the United States would push back if necessary. Uh, the Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, who joined Blinken for his talks with Japanese counterparts in Tokyo, cited China's, quote, destabilizing actions in the East and South China Sea. So uh, basically what it looks like is Biden sent a lot of a lot of his officials over on this incredibly high profile visit to South Korea and Japan, two of the United States' closest allies in Asia, and were very and you know told them and communicated very, very pointedly the desire for pushing back China if needed, especially on their military ambitions. Uh, basically indicating that there would be no going back to the more softened tone and rhetoric uh, towards China that was in place during the Obama administration that Biden was not going to be going, you know, back to that. He was going to be creating his own way to negotiate, and it's, it's going to be a tougher, more hardline stance. So 
As of now, they're not having any type of joint pronouncement on next steps coming out of this summit in up in Alaska, uh, which is normally very customary after summits like this one. Most of the time when you see the United States or I guess really any other two countries have their top um, diplomats come together, there normally is like a joint pronouncement afterwards where you'll have like the American people stand on one side of the podium and the, you know, the Chinese uh, people standing on the other side of the podium and they'll you know, talk about like, oh, this is what was beneficial in the conversation that we had. And here are the next steps that we want to be able to take towards, you know, long lasting relationships between our two countries. They're not doing that. They're instead basically planning on going in and taking stock of the goals and positions that China has and then bring them back to the White House in order to formulate an overarching strategy for pushing back China and a lot of the different ways that they are attacking and taking over American interests. Um, so senior Biden officials have said that they think that there needs to be a serious reorientation of our military resources as well out of the Middle East so that they can be focused on China. So a couple officials actually said, uh, quote, now I think it's become much more urgent, much more serious. We really do need to get out of the Middle East. We need to think about warfare with China because China is the only country that has the ability to comprehensively challenge the United States. So it looks like Biden officials are really kind of starting to rework and rethink a lot of the different positions that America has militarily throughout the world because they are worried that China is going to pose such a detrimental problem to the United States militarily should they decide to to provoke the United States in any way, which hopefully will not happen. But I would be very surprised to see any type of significant policy achievements come out of this meeting with uh, high-ranking Chinese officials, but hopefully it will shed a little bit of light on how Biden plans to tackle the problem of China going forward. Uh, On this podcast, the things that I love to talk about the most, honestly, are foreign policy and economic policy, even though I know that some of my listeners may think that's a little bit boring. I think it's very important to Uh, talk through some of those hierarching, those bigger issues, right? Because they have an incredibly large impact, especially on the world stage, as opposed to maybe some culture war stuff like I don't know, the the Grammys that happened this past week that everyone is talking about with, you know, Cardi B and Nicki Minaj up there dancing around. I'd rather not talk about that. I think this stuff is more important. So with all of that having been said, let's go ahead and hop on into our third story and our last story, story number three. So for our last story of the day, the Derek Chauvin trial uh, has a bit of news, has a little bit of a rough start. We can go ahead and we'll move through this one a little bit quickly because it's actually not a huge amount of news. I kind of just wanted to mention it because this will likely be one of the largest trials, at least in the past 30 years and maybe going into the next 15 or 20 years as well, especially considering considering the countrywide investment uh, in seeing and, and longing for a certain outcome in this trial. So Derek Chauvin... Uh, was the officer that was involved in the death of George Floyd last summer. His trial was set to start on the at the end of March. I believe March 29th was the goal for when that was supposed to start. Jurors are cho- currently being chosen, but due to an announcement of the $27 million settlement that Floyd's family uh, received with the city of Minneapolis, two jurors actually had to be let go within this past week, which means that they're still not even halfway there in getting the 14 jurors needed to actually start the trial. So, so far the judge has said that uh, he has every intention of having the opening statements presented on the date set. 
However, it is looking more and more unlikely as that date nears. Uh, Finding impartial jurors for a case like this is almost like finding a needle in the haystack. Like they have to be impartial to the story or just not know about it at all by some crazy happenstance that they wouldn't know about it. Uh, Like I believe that there are actually a few jurors in the OJ Simpson trial that were happened to be at the time on a cruise or something like that. And they during while all the stuff was going down. And they came back and had no idea what was going on. They like went went back out to their daily lives and never heard anything about the O.J. Simpson case and were called on to come in and actually sit in the trial because they literally had no idea what had happened. Uh, but especially during the day and age of social media, TV, uh, you I mean, we are constantly connected to the world around us, just being inundated at all times with things that are going on. So it's incredibly difficult to find people that wouldn't know about what happened with George Floyd. So a defense basically has to go in and agree on and choose jurors uh, that basically wouldn't be... Um, I don't know, too impartial during the trial. So obviously it would be a very poor decision to for the lawyers to just go in and choose a whole bunch of people that are Black Lives Matter protesters, right? You would never choose those for as a defense lawyer for the jurors because you know that what they're going to decide before the trial even starts, okay? So I think at this point, it's unlikely this thing is going to start when it's supposed to. I also think it will be highly, highly controversial. There have already been problems with people in the media uh, that have been allowed into the courtroom. So uh, with it being a bit more basically high profile, all the news channels want to be covering this type of thing. Uh, Media has been incredibly intrusive already and invasive. The defense attorney, without actually naming names, claimed that there were people uh, in the media, in the courtroom, trying to take pictures of his notebook while they were in there, supposing to be, you know, supposedly covering the case, uh, which is obviously absolutely unacceptable. So I think that it will be very important to see how this trial proceeds. I think that there are a lot of people that are going to be using this as a litmus test uh, as to how and what criminal justice reform needs to be taking place in America, which is unfortunate because it's only one trial. But I think that if he gets off easy or the defense has a very, very sound argument in front of the jurors, then there's going to be a lot of people that are jumping up and down and saying that our system needs to be torn down completely and rebuilt. Uh, If he gets absolutely crucified on a national stage, then it's basically going to be set, try and set a precedent for how cases like this should be handled in the future. And I, I, I hate to see this much pressure put on one trial because as much as I think that what happened to George Floyd was absolutely horrible, and I do think that it should be considered murder under the penalty of the law, uh, man, it's it, because of the pressure that is on this trial, I'd be very, very surprised to uh, not see incredible outrage happen on either side. So we'll have to see how everything goes forward. Uh, I will definitely be watching that and covering that closely as the date nears. So with all that having been said, that is the end of our third and last story of the day. Let's go ahead and hop on into our last segment, my favorite segment, something that made me smile. So something that made me smile this week is going to have to be the kicking off of March Madness. I am so stoked to be sitting around and watching some basketball. I honestly watch zero college basketball throughout the season. But then when March Madness comes around, I'm like, 
I want to watch almost every single game. There's something about like the excitement of all the college teams getting in there and people just playing their hearts out. And we didn't get any March Madness last year, so we just missed it completely. And I'm like, dude, I'm ready to see some good college basketball happening. I'm ready for the upsets. I'm ready for the Cinderella teams. I'm ready to see who's going to win the whole thing. I think it's going to be a blast, a ton of fun to watch. So definitely looking forward to it. That is for sure what has made me smile this week. So uh, with all that, that is the end of our show today. Thank you so much for stopping by and for checking us out. As always, y'all go and find me on Instagram at Split the Difference Podcast with one T. I'm on uh, Facebook and YouTube as well at Split the Difference and my website at splitthedifference.com. Go and check me out. Drop me all of the likes and subscribes and the five star reviews and the thumbs up that you possibly can because they help a lot in showing me what kind of content that y'all like, but also helping me get into the ears of many more people that may not have heard of me before. So as always, y'all remember that we're going to do our best to stay level-headed. We are always going to be reasonable. And of course, we're going to split the difference. This is Austin Taylor.